This is Lee Bergstein. And I'm Cooper Knowlton. We're two lawyers walking to a bar. Today we're joined by Christian Lang. He's the creator, founder of Black Lines and Billables. I'm working on a bunch of other projects that we'll get into over the course of this chat. Hey, Christian. Hey, guys. How you doing? And today we are drinking red wine because Christian likes red wine. Going to class it up a little. Well, what kind, of, what kind of red wine is this? This is a Pinot Noir. Okay. Pinot Noir. Okay. Pinot We're drinking Noir. out of very fancy glasses too, which so, I'm sure will be super annoying to Craig as they continue to hit the table the entire interview. I chose the wine, but we left it to Cooper to choose the glasses, and he chose the most bizarre assortment of glasses I've ever seen. Good pod when you're talking about uh, <laughs> things that the listener can't see. <laughs> well, there'll be photos up on the show notes, so photos of Cooper's glasses. Be sure to check them out. Um, all right. Enough about the wine. Why don't we get into this? Uh, so, Christian, why don't we start off by having you tell us a little bit more um, about what you're up to today and the projects that you're working on? Sure. Um, well, as we'll talk about, I, I'm a recovering corporate lawyer, did the the big law thing for, for some years at Davis Polk and Wardwell. Um, and I left the firm a little over a year and a half ago to work on a few projects. Um, what I think of as my main project is a tech venture of working to solve some of the knowledge management challenges and institutional memory memory challenges that the large firms in particular struggle with. Um, but I, I launched originally as a side project and has actually turned into a, a, a bit more of a material venture, um, something called Black Lines and Billables. Uh, I spent a few years working in the firm's London office and was very uh, focused in a few projects, training some some junior lawyers and, and I share a lot of the same frustrations a lot of lawyers have about kind of the pedagogical model within law firms and the fact that you're doing the same things over and over, making the same mistakes people have made over and over again. So I started working on a book that to just write some of this stuff down that I felt like I was teaching every junior associate who was staffed under me. Um, you were doing this while you were in London? While I was in London, yeah. So in, in fits and starts, uh, it was hard to kind of find the time. Sure. Uh, but just a bit of a passion project. I love to write. I love to teach. Um, and when I left – the firm, knowing that the tech venture, even if it went perfectly, would take years to make any money from, I was like, okay, I need a side project. And I started focusing on that book and realized the book was actually a pretty terrible format for this sort of mm -hmm. practical tips, like tricks of the trade, t tips and tricks for junior associates. It makes more sense to be a short form content, like a blog. People can chime in, disagree with things, pick up different threads. Um, so I launched a blog. Uh, Later on, about a year ago from today, actually, I expanded the blog to cover legal technology and innovation, mm -hmm. um, which has been a ton of fun. And, and we've also now launched a podcast that relates to the same topics, like kind of half lawyer training, half legal tech. Uh, our biggest, our biggest direct competitor on the yeah. web right now. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just, I'm actually here, just like just you know, plug that. espionage. Just to plug, just no, to plug actually, your just kind of yes. For the next setup. 45 minutes, Christian's going to plug himself <laughs> and his various projects. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so and I've launched a couple of meetup groups, which has been super fun. The most recent one, which has taken off a bit, is the NYC Legal Tech Meetup, uh, which is focused on kind of fostering community in New York around the legal tech scene, which I has was been great. There last week, it was great. Yeah, thanks so much for showing up. Absolutely, you, you're so good. You gave me some cash on the way out, which I thought was fantastic. <laughs> well, you shouldn't talk about that on air. Oh, okay, so. I came for the pizza, but stayed for the tech. <laughs> yeah, uh, and so, in addition to those projects. Um, I've got a little brand under which I, I give kind of talks and trainings in law firms uh, and, and potentially some consulting if, if that work bears out, even though I haven't put a lot of weight behind that yet. And um, on the side, a buddy of mine runs a really cool, innovative, disruptive CLE technology, like a mobile-first experience called mm. Talks on Law. And so I help negotiate his enterprise partnerships and law firm sales for, for that. 
Interesting. Well, I have a lot more questions about all those things, but um, instead of digging too deep into those now, why don't we start by going back to the beginning? Um, I'm, I'm curious to know, I know a little bit about your background, but was, was the law something that you were always interested in? If you would, if I had asked a 14 year old Christian, would he have said being a lawyer was something he was interested in doing? Uh, highly interested in the law. I was, I was the kind of kid. I think I'd seen like every of the original Law and Order, every episode ever created. Oh, wow. uh, pretty early on, maybe that's hyperbole, but pretty pretty close. Um, but that did not translate into wanting to be a lawyer. In fact, I was absolutely dead set against becoming a lawyer. I, I think because I was a middle child and everyone told me since I was like able to walk and talk that I was going to be a lawyer. I was like, absolutely <laughs> not going to happen. Uh, and so for the longest time, it was never in the cards. Why, why didn't you – it was just because you were – trying to go against what everyone was telling you? Potentially just a, a bit of a contrarian impulse. Um, but part of it also was, you know, I, I don't think I had a great appreciation for all the things that lawyers can do. And so I thought of it as kind of, the, I had a pretty myopic understanding of what law was that was kind of focused on frivolous litigation. And, and, and you know, my high-minded... That's not what lawyers do. Yeah, no, right? <laughs> my uh, my high-minded 12-year-old self was like, well, if this is my only life I get to lead, I don't want to waste it, you know, you know, just arguing over silly little material disputes. I'd rather do something more important. Um, <laughs> that that view very, evolved over Very time. nobly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so at what point, um, when was the first point in your, in your life where actually going to law school was something you, you started seriously considering? It was actually pretty late. Um, and I, we can talk maybe about what I did between college and law school. I took some time off. Yeah. And my last... Why don't you tell us, what what did you do? Yeah, so um, coming out, so I went to the University of Virginia undergrad. Uh, Coming out of of school, I I flirted with the idea of trying to, you know, take a fairly vanilla career path. Went through some interviews, particularly in like the management consulting space, which, you know, very popular for the University of Virginia grads. And uh, a really good buddy of mine at the time – and uh, a cool guy who, who's very innovative is actually working on some really cool projects now as well. Um, was had developed some relationships with uh, the Center for Politics, Larry Sabato's you know politics center at the University of Virginia, and, and a part of it called the Youth Leadership Initiative. And we were both native Georgians uh, who had been kind of politically engaged and active growing up, and uh, shared this instinct that there was just a, a huge deficiency in civic education in Georgia public schools. And, and he was working on a project to help bring some of the good work being done at the Center for Politics and, and the Youth Leadership Initiative of Virginia into Georgia public schools. He was still in school. I was graduating. So we partnered together, launched this little nonprofit called Georgia PACE, the Project for Active Civic Engagement. Uh, and I went down to Georgia straight out of school and started implementing things like, you know, mock elections in, in connection with the 2004 presidential race in Georgia public schools. So, for example, mm. we took a what was a laborious, you know, pencil and paper behemoth that made a social studies teacher do a bunch of he- heavy lifting and didn't actually work to, to bring in this computerized system where kids could vote online and had a couple hundred thousand kids in Georgia public schools vote in that mock election. And ironically, that turned into a real mock election down the road. Yeah. <laughs> true, true story. There's a lot of, yeah. <laughs> That was a, it was a very formative uh, election in my life, actually, because when we lost, when we lost, when, 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 when Bush got reelected in 2004, that was a bit of a straw that brought the camels back for me in terms of some political disenchantment. And I was also regretting not having studied abroad in college because I was really uh, overcommitted. So I ended up buying just a one-way ticket to, to Paris um, as a way to kind of just 
throw my cap over the wall. And make, so romantic. Yeah. Well, I was trying to find a job and it was really difficult. And I was like, I just have to tie myself to the mass. So I just need a butt. To take it. <laughs> uh, and it all, it was incredible how it worked out. Cause I, I it was like, I think it was 11 days before I, I was getting on the plane. I got a phone call on this newfangled thing called Skype, which I was driving down Peachtree street in Atlanta and this guy calls me from a thing called Skype. I had no idea what it was. He's like, I'm sitting in Paris. He's like, you applied to this bike tour company, you know, last year. I don't know if you remember. I was like, absolutely. He's like, we just lost a guy for the summer. Any interest in, in joining us? And I'm like, I'm actually, you know, I'm, I'm flying over. He's like, well, can you start in two weeks? I'm like, I'm there in 11 days. And he's like, perfect. So I ended up uh, moving to Paris and giving bike tours. And I don't always like to admit Segway tours um, of Paris <laughs> for a year. Um, and circling back to the answer to what we were talking about a minute ago, after being there for a year, the then Secretary of State of Georgia, Kathy Cox, uh, who was the – that's the office that oversees civic education in Georgia public schools. So it was her office with whom we were working um, on the nonprofit. She decided to run for governor. She, you know, she's an incredible woman, making an incredible candidate. Uh, I thought she did wonders for the state. So I decided I wanted to work for her, so I moved back to Georgia um, and then basically clawed my way under her campaign. Um, and it was on that campaign, I was working in a kind of a writing in a, in a fundraising capacity, interacting with a lot of cool donors who had JDs in their background, but didn't practice law and had done cool things with them and had transactional backgrounds. Um, when I, when I saw all these different interesting people doing interesting things and leading companies and being in the executive roles and CEO roles with the legal background, that's what, where, you know, a switch kind of flipped for me. I was like, oh, this is, this is something I might actually consider. And when we lost our our primary election, there was a LSAT sitting coming up. So I was like, yeah, why not? I'll just, I'll study. So even even when you were in, in, in uh, Paris, you still never thought you would go back to law school. It still wasn't really something you were thinking about. It, it wasn't in the front of my mind, but it yeah. actually was super important in that story because I experienced a, a, a pretty meaningful evolution while, while I was in Paris. I left because I was kind of politically disenchanted. And if anyone else has lived abroad, I think you'll have this experience. I mean, you know, the United States, it has, you know, plenty of stuff wrong with it. But I am absolutely, like, died in the wall, like a huge American patriot and also a huge capitalist. And living in another country, in another context, taught me exactly how much of a capitalist I was and how incredible this country was. And it helps you – it helps reframe your vision to the, you know, the kind of, oh, look at all everything that's wrong with our country. Look at everything that's broken. It helps it – helps you reframe it as here's this big, beautiful but – unfinished project that we're all working on together and it's really important to like roll up your sleeves and get involved to be a part of it uh and so that was actually what formed my personal statement when i applied to law school was the formative experience of being over there what it taught me about myself and the country and and, and the reason why it generated the interest in the law and being a part of that and, man and, I, I just missed american food it's so much more <laughs> profound i am a sucker for a good white sauce though, so. <laughs> it sounds like even when you began to think that law school made sense for you, that it was more a means to an entrepreneurial end. Because you're, you're talking about it within the context of people who were doing non-legal things, but they had this shady in their background and whether it helped them get to where they wanted to go or whether the extra schooling put them in a position to excel on, on a business level. It sounds like that was kind of in the back of your mind, even pre-law school. Is that right? Yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, now, it wasn't always that clear because I absolutely love like the law and order stuff. I love litigation. I think it's super fun. In fact, when I was in law school, I used to, I was the co-chair of the mock trial team. Yeah. I was an evidence TA, you know, <laughs> like I love that stuff. Um, so it was really hard for me. It was, it, at, at times it came down to a bit of a head versus heart kind of struggle for me. Um, 
But at, on, at the head level, I think that's definitely true. And one of the things that kind of animated that whole decision, I'm just I, – I, I absolutely hate not knowing things. And the law is so important in defining the background rules and the why things happen. Like when you're looking at headlines in the paper of corporate deals or international politics, whatever the case may be, so often there's background rules that are kind of tilting the playing field in a particular way or constraining it in a particular way or it's cabined by legal rules. And I I just – I knew I would never be satisfied unless I understood that, what was going on, had access to that language. Um, And so I think that dovetails with what you're talking about. It's it's wanting to understand it so that you can do other things in addition to just practice law that that kind of animated that project for me. So tell us a little bit about the the process of applying to law school. Yeah, so um, I was a perfectly you know decent college student, but by no means was I a great college student. I think my GPA was you know bottom five percent when I when I got to, ended up at NYU Law, and you know my GPA would have been in the bottom five percent of average GPAs at NYU Law, right? So like, <laughs> are they going to say the bottom five percent at University of? Virginia. No, I, it, no, it wasn't that. I think I had okay. like a you know three four. And I was going to say that's not like decent, that. Christian. Yeah. <laughs> bottom five no. percent. I did okay. I mean, I wasn't terrible, but I you know I had my I had my share of of, of not so hot grades. Um, and when you're applying to law school, you need you like, the friends that you have these incredible transcripts that are you know almost perfect. And I thought I had a I thought I had a really interesting story to tell. I thought I could write a good personal statement. I thought I had really cool experience in my background <clears throat> and some accolades to go with it and a few things like that. But I had no idea how law schools would receive my application. So I put an absolutely enormous amount of time in my personal statement. Um, I actually made the choice when we left the campaign to not work for a while, then just tutor the LSAT for a while, and then when I ultimately started working and just waiting some tables and literally treated writing my personal statement like a job and probably put way too much time into it, but literally spent hundreds of hours working my personal statement. Um, and then I applied to, I think, 17 law schools. It's I, interesting. I, I, have a, I have a very similar law school experience because I, I think I had a very similar GPA. I went to Amherst College, and I, I took four years off. I was a teacher in public schools for two years, and then I was in the Peace Corps for two years. And same deal. I was like, you know, I, I ended up going to University of Michigan and I sort of felt, go blue. Go blue. I felt like, um, I had an interesting story, but I sort of in the back of my mind, I was like, and, and I did, I did pretty well in the LSAT too, but I was like this, this, you know, three, three, seven or something is going to kill me because, you know, all these schools that I'm applying to, the, the, the average range is three, six to three, nine. <laughs> I, had and, a, I had a funny experience where, uh, <clears throat> when I had been at, my little sister went to Southern Cal. And I think when I was out there for a graduation or something, I stuck my head into UCLA Law School, which I thought might be within reach, <clears throat> and got an appointment with the dean and had a nice conversation with him. And like, he was actually following up with me during the application process. And one of the first letters to come in, I don't remember which one it was, but I, one of my top schools came in right at the beginning. So I kind of knew that anything below was kind of off the table. Uh, including UCLA. <laughs> and he called me. We were driving down the road on speakerphone, and I, he had been so nice through the process. I was like, you got to sound excited. you got to sound excited because I knew what was coming. He was calling to personally tell me that I'd gotten in. Right. <laughs> and he did. And instead of being like, oh, that's great, or oh, thanks so much, I was like, congratulations. <laughs> and it made no sense whatsoever. I think I tried to pretend that there was somebody else in the car that had said it or something like that. It was really funny. I started did. changing your voice. Basically, your yeah. voice. Was, I pulled was a the, Trump publicist. Basically. Was the NYU decision um, <clears throat> largely based on rankings, or was it largely based on wanting to live in New York? How did uh, that play in? 
a little bit of both, but more New York and it, it, more fit. So, uh, I would have loved to have gone to University of Virginia's law school, which is my impression is probably the most fun one going. Mm-hmm. I, got, um, I got rejected. Did you? I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I was actually that was the letter that came in early, um, but because I had gone there undergrad, I decided I wanted to have a different experience. So I didn't consider that. Um, loved Michigan. Would have gone there in a heartbeat. But my family all went to Michigan. Where you know I bleed maize and blue, so would have loved that. But absent those two schools, I really was focused. I thought because I might want to end up doing transactional work or understanding business. New York might be the best place to be. And I had originally zeroed in on Columbia, thinking that that was a great combination. Like UVA undergrad, Columbia law school. That that's the right combination. Looks good. Columbia looks great on paper. Website's great. <clears throat> I was lucky enough to get in. I went up there. I saw it. <clears throat> They put on a great admitted students day. Everything went like clockwork, and it was great. I was like, oh, good, good, good time. And then I went to NYU's admitted student day, and it was a bit of a mess. Like, you know, like things were kind of disorganized, and it didn't really, didn't really hum the way that Columbia's did. But the program, the people, and the professors were so cool that when I was sitting at the lunch table, this was my most profound impression. There were like seven other candidates at the table with a professor. Six of the seven of us had lived abroad. Five of the seven had other advanced degrees and it was it's much more diverse like nyu is a, is a significantly older law school population than a lot of the other top school like i think columbia i think there's like a solid year or two on average in there uh and i experienced it to be more diverse and it just felt i don't know it just it was just a fit thing i, I it felt like the right place to be um and so i just kind of changed my mind and went nyu instead it's cool i think a lot of people don't have i think i think there's too many people who just purely look at the rankings and don't really think enough about what's a good fit. They just look and say, you know, Columbia is higher than NYU on U.S. World News Report and end up doing that. And I think I think having the maturity to, to make it make that decision is really smart. Fit is so important. And this applies to law school decisions too. But when you're in a high-stress environment, uh, you know, <laughs> challenging yourself to do something crazy, you, you, you want to be you want to be in a, comfort, a place where you feel as comfortable as possible, where you like the environment. And, you know, a lot of people struggle to be happy in law school. A lot of people struggle to be happy in law firms. It's really important to find a place where you feel like you fit in and you could you could see yourself being happy. Did you have a network in New York at that time? Um, I'm trying to remember if I had a bunch of close friends. I definitely had a good handful of friends. You know, it's, there's a pretty serious pipeline between UVA undergrad in New York. Um, so I had some college buddies up here, uh, some family out in the burbs. Um, right, but, your, your Rogers Segway at Long Island. Yeah, I, I definitely. There's a Segway <laughs> club I got really involved in really early on, uh, which is very helpful. Um, but no, it, it really it was a bit of a clean slate move for me in most respects. How was that? I actually, I'm a weirdo. Like I, I absolutely love going to new places and starting fresh. Not that I, I mean, it's really important. I maintain a lot of close friendships with people from my past life. Like a lot of people think I'm strange because I have a lot of really close friends from high school that I still routinely keep in touch with. Like we used to have like informal high school reunions every year for like, you know, 15 years afterwards. Um, so it's really important to me to stay in touch with people, but I love the experience of putting yourself in a position where you're uncomfortable and you don't know anybody. Cause that's where you like, that's what forces you to kind of interact with people and grow and do weird things. Like, I don't know if you guys have ever had the experience of going out for the night, like by yourself, uh, it's not, you know, I don't do it often, but like if one of my friends is playing a show and I can't find anyone to go with me, but you go anyway and you're just the one person, you know, you always end up meeting somebody crazy. You would not have, you would not have done it if you were there with somebody, but you meet somebody, you get in a cool experience, you get invited somewhere. It really, it's a ton of fun. I got into it when I was, uh, I think first when I was the bike tour guide in France, the company 
was growing that year like crazy. It was really hard for guides to get off more than one at a time. So when we would go take our side trips and travel around Europe and do cool things, you almost always had to be by yourself. And so you'd go do the hostel thing and meet a bunch of people. And, and uh, once you kind of cut your teeth at that a little bit, it, I think it could be fun. I think what you're describing is kind of the backbone of the unspoken ingredient in a successful law school or law career, which is networking. Networking is all about putting yourself into uncomfortable positions, but uh, a lot of people don't really have any experience at it because they follow this traditional path from college to law school and everything is very, very comfortable. Um, And networking by definition really, I don't want to call it networking, developing relationships with, with other people is not totally comfortable all the time. It, it, it's so unbelievably true. We delved into this a bit on, on Black Lines and Billables, but it, you know, there's the external networking for client development purposes. There's the internal networking and within firms for career advancement purposes. A lot of people don't feel comfortable having a social interaction with a partner as an associate, which is almost as important as going out and trying to find clients. Right. right. Um, I think you're absolutely right about that. And you know, to the extent I had any hand in business development things during my career, it almost always shook out of met a guy at a bar having a drink and yeah yeah just general i mean general maybe this is just me because i enjoy it but from just a general mental health fullness of life perspective too i think just being able to do that and get out and meet new people it's always happier when you've done it i'll ask this to both of you do you think taking time off between college and law school better position you to do that because I didn't take time off. Better positioned us to be to, successful in law school or to go to law school? Or? Well, no, but to take risks, to take chances, to reach out to people that you might not feel comfortable otherwise reaching out to. to I'll let Christian some. take it. Yeah, well, for me, well, for you, I was just thinking like the Peace Corps experience. You must, yeah. That must have been hugely. Totally. Like, yeah, yeah. that seal. Like so Christian yeah. will answer for both of you. It's both <laughs> <fun>. <laughs> yeah, that's straight. Um, yeah, no, for me, I, I, I definitely think that's true. Yeah. Um, you know. Trying to get that initial nonprofit off the ground, having fundraising conversations, trying to ask somebody for money, like in, in the politics context, same thing. Like you're just interacting with people all day long, different people having to be shameless sometimes when it comes to fundraising, also having to be tactful and get, you know, get work with people that you don't know and get to meet new people. It, it, it is a practice skill. It takes work. It takes effort. And I certainly had lots of opportunities for that given what I was doing, particularly, you know, you're a professional tour guide, you're interacting with new people all day, every day. Um, so for me, given what I did, that was hugely true, but I think it's almost necessarily true for anyone else. And I, I always highly, highly, highly recommend people taking time off before law school. I was definitely not ready to go straight to, I would have done terribly in law school if I had gone straight yeah, through. I think I would have too. I, I think it's, I think it's interesting though, the way you frame that. Like, I think there's certain type of things that I find I really like, I really enjoy going to new places and like do some, doing something like the Peace Corps felt very natural for me. And I, it wasn't, it was like that type of, like, I enjoy meeting new people. I enjoy putting myself in uncomfortable situations. Yet I still think you are someone just, just knowing you, you're, you being Lee, you're someone who enjoys like going to a networking event way more than I do. Like, I still hate that shit. I hate like going to some cocktail party where everyone's sitting around being like, what do you do? What do you do? Like, that's. That's never been something I felt particularly good at, something I've enjoyed, whereas like I feel like you thrive under those under those I don't say things. what do you do? I walk up to someone and say something really uncomfortable. It's not true. You don't. <laughs> so so Christian, turning back to sort of going through your your biography, one of the questions I like to ask is how would someone in your one L in your one L section describe you as a law student? 
Oh man, I would hate to hear that answer. Were you? Because usually I find that the people who have taken a few years off are way more focused. It's way more. They approach it more like a job. They sit in the front row. Everyone doesn't like them. You know, the sort of. I could tell you the direct college to law school kids, of which I was one, hated hated those people. Yeah, no. But it was um, more envy, I think, looking back at it. That That is a great question. So <clears throat> in at least a couple of my classes, I, I was part of a study group that was like <laughs> the study group that, you know, ended up on Above the Law was like terrible, known as like being terrible. Now, I, I just individually, I like to think I, I was never I, – I was a better student in law school than I was undergrad, but I still wasn't a great student. And I also – I also just – didn't believe in taking it too seriously, didn't believe in the whole kind of rat race competition thing the way that some other people did. So I hope I wouldn't be categorically lumped in with some of those folks. I think I kind of straddled the fence. Maybe that's not true. Maybe that's just, you know, wishful thinking. But um, but you were pretty intense. I would I would volunteer to answer a question, you know, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. It wasn't, I wasn't the kid who, like, never said anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were certainly some classes in which I would rise to debates. Um, some classes I definitely wouldn't. Um, but some classes in which I would. Did you enjoy being a law student? I I really enjoyed first year. Um, That's said no one ever. Yeah, right? It's kind of weird. Most people don't. Um, I loved law school, but I hated the first year. Especially you? because you yeah. were anti-rat race, which is, I mean, that's the year when you're when you're racing rats. It's true. I, I, I found, I just intellectually, I just really enjoyed. I, there was so much in that first year that I just had always wanted to know, you know. And like there were just some of those core doctrinal courses, which some people hate, but like I absolutely loved contracts. And part of that was because we had a fantastic contracts professor and the class was incredible and engaging and a great section. So I had great friends who I was learning from all the time. Um, but I just was really interested in a lot of that content. And having been out of school for a couple of years, being back in school is super fun. Um, and then it's not to say that there was other things about the other years pedagogically I liked less, but like for example – Doing the callbacks that second that first semester of second year, I did way too many callbacks, or at least it felt like too many callbacks, and I got way behind, and then was felt like I was stressed out all the time just because I never got anything done. But that said, I was never that on top of. The, I don't think I ever finished an outline for any class the entirety of law school. Did you right from the get go? Were you thinking about going into corporate law? Um, it was a distinct possibility, but I, I felt like I very much kept an open mind. Uh, when I, let's see. So my first summer, I, I, I took a litigation related gig. I worked in the appellate division of the U S attorney's office in DC, mm-hmm. uh, instead of going to a firm, which I think would have been more corporate focused. Um, my second, when I was at the firm, my second summer, I did the traditional second summer at my, the law firm I went to Dave's Polk. Um, I, uh, I, I did a pretty good mix. I focused a little bit more on corporate because I felt like I had a better understanding of what litigation was and how it worked and knew nothing about corporate. But still trying to keep it open mind. Like I mentioned earlier, I was an evidence TA in school, so like, I loved that stuff. I was on the mock trial team, loved that stuff. And I ended up clerking um, coming out of school. Um, so I was kind of open, had an open mind about that decision right up until the absolute 11th hour. I didn't tell Davis Polk what, what group I wanted to go into or what department I wanted to go into until I think the very last minute right before I came back at the end of my clerkship year when I was required to. What animated the decision to um, do the clerkship? 
I, I, I think I got my applications together pretty late. I, I'm not sure I would really had entertained the notion because I was like, I may go corporate. I don't think I want to be at a law firm all that long, so I should probably just get to it. Um, part of it was probably just getting caught up. All my friends were doing I was like, oh, I should be, I should be doing clerkship applications. But then you, you start talking to people who clerk, and, and they've had – you talk to people who have had incredible experiences. Um, so I, you know, I threw my hat in the ring and applied to some stuff. I had kind of an odd application result. Like I got a couple of interviews both at the circuit level, no district level interviews. Um, so I just kind of shot for the moon on the clerkships and was like, I'm not going to absolutely do one. I, but if I can get a circuit level clerkship, I'll do it. Um, and was lucky enough to, to, to get an offer from the judge I went from went with. Uh, what was um, that judge? Uh, his name's Chuck Wilson, Charles Wilson. He keeps these on the 11th Circuit. He keeps the chambers down in Tampa, Florida. Um, so a wonderful judge, wonderful man, um, and was very, very lucky uh, to go work with him in his chambers. What was the interview process for that like? Um, it was pretty relaxed, to be honest. Uh, yeah, obviously, I'll, 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 I won't say a lot about you know, by anything behind the scenes stuff, the clerkship, but I, I don't think it's any secret. Most people, you know, anyone who interacts with Judge Wilson will know, he, you know, he's a very, he's an incredibly kind and genteel person who's very kind of laid back and low key. And that was reflected, you know, in the interview process. I don't think he'd have a problem with me relaying that. So we just had a nice chat. And I think, you know, I think he looked at the application materials, had decided um, who we thought might be a decent candidate. And so the interviews are really just about trying to find a good personality fit and, and, and make sure that somebody's you know the right candidate, as opposed to some sort of grueling crucible-like interview where they you get grilled. Over. I, mean, I had friend Fred's interview with you know Posner and things where you're just like having to really defend some sort of legal idea that can be tough. Having having spent the last three years living in New York and knowing that you would ultimately have a career in New York, were you how was how was the year in Tampa? What was that like? It was incredible. Um, I love I absolutely love New York, and I think it's the greatest city on earth. I struggled to settle in during law school. Um, some personal reasons for that as a Southerner being in New York, it takes, that's an adjustment, Mm -hmm. um, in in a lot of ways. Uh, New York is not always the funnest place to live when you have no money. And I was like dirt poor in law school. Um, so being away from New York for a year was a break that I needed. And also the juxtaposition of Tampa in New York is absolutely hilarious. In, in a, actually, I love Tampa in a lot of respects. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I'd want to be there for a super extended period of time, just in terms of who I am as a person. But like, I really viscerally enjoyed the year, and it also made me incredibly appreciate what New York had to offer. So when I came back, I was super energized to come back, dove right into it, had a real income for the first time in my life, and you know, had a great time. How did you pick Davis Polk? What was the process like in deciding that's where you wanted to, where you wanted to be? So I was – I cast a pretty – I, I kind of took the same uh, approach to applying to law, like law firms as I did the law schools. So I cast a really wide net, was trying to look for a good fit. Spent hundreds of hours on the cover letter? Basically. Yeah, no, actually <laughs> I didn't. I didn't quite do that. Uh, we did have a hilarious – I dug it up the other day. We had this just hilariously ill-informed group Excel sheet we were sending around trying to educate ourselves about these firms you know nothing about. Sure. And yeah. like this, looking at the stuff we decided to include on these spreadsheets, it was so just hilarious. Insane. It was just, yeah. it was I so remember when I, when I did When I went through the OCI, I realized like after the third, and I did the same thing. I was like researching the lawyers I was going to meet with and, you know, trying to come up with reasons for why I wanted to go to this firm over this firm. And it's like, after the third one, I was like, this is all a waste of time. It was just like, you just go in and you, you shoot the shit and you just sort of 
But the idea that everyone is sitting there trying to be like, well, they have a different firm culture and they have a free market. It's just like, it's so silly. There are a few important things you can try to get sure. at. It's really tough. We actually have one of our, if I can plug the podcast, on, on the Black Lines and Billables podcast, we do have a great panel discussion on preparing for interviews. We're in, going we're gonna to just beep, beep call those parts. Yeah, bleep <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, if it doesn't get bleeped out, go listen to it. It'd be awesome. So I had cast a, this, a really wide net and then the, you know, the wheels came off the economy. Uh, and the financial crisis hit. And no one quite knew exactly what was going to shake out for law firms, but whereas my list of potential law firms was quite long, it got very short in a hurry. I was like, okay, I'm going to go to one of the absolute top, you know, one of the best firms I can get into that I know will be solvent in, in, in weather this storm. And so at the end of the day, whereas I had been considering a bunch of different firms, I, I really, at the end of the day, was just deciding between Cravath and Davis Polk. Um, and the decision between those two places came down to some pretty important distinctions along the lines of some of the things we were just joking about, like the rotation model, you know, like Cravath has the Cravath training model where you work with one partner. Yeah. And then, you know, Dave Spoke has a more traditional rotation system. Um, and, uh, really just kind of the cultural fit. And it, I think you're absolutely right. I think the cultural fit is definitely super important. I think it's that just like the, like you said about going to the law school, going to the firm. I think regardless of it's good advice for anything. Like just sort of having a good sense of like I like the people that I'm going to potentially be working with. I think that's trusting your gut. Yeah, yeah, both incredibly important. And you really just gotta make an effort to meet as many people as you can. Yeah. You, I think people would be amazed, and I, you guys can probably testify to this too. Like you meet three or four people. You might have a bit of a gut reaction, but that's really not that enough necessarily to get a good read on the firm's culture. But you meet eight to a dozen people, sure. you'd be amazed how accurate of a read you can get on a place just from meeting like 10 or 12 lawyers at, at one of these 800-person firms. Um, and so uh, I just – you know, Davis Polk had what I wanted to do. The other thing they had I, – I didn't know exactly where I was going to end up professionally in terms of what I wanted to practice. And it's it's a pretty rare firm in terms of its strength across the board. So if I had audible, tried to audible the litigation, would have been fine. If I had wanted, you know, I thought I might want to do M and A, but if I had wanted to change to capital markets work or do credit financing work, like I, I could have put myself in a great group with great exit options. Uh, and not all firms are like that. Did you ever struggle? I ask this because it's something that I that I struggled with a little bit. Um, philosophically with, with the idea of being a corporate lawyer. I only ask just based on the, based on the sense that I got from, you know, starting this nonprofit and sort of having a very political, you've sort of shown which side of the aisle you're, (laughs) you're, uh, you identify with. So I'm just curious if you ever felt like, um, being a corporate lawyer was all at all sort of intention with, with those sort of more progressive values. Yeah, I just want to. There's a couple of things you could have been asking, but the values bit at the end clarified it. So, um, I I was never in one of these positions which you hear about. You hear stories. You have friends who are like they want me to defend big tobacco, mm-hmm. or they want me to, you know, the famous scene from the West Wing where Sam Seaborn's having to buy the oil tanker, right? That he knows is going. <laughs> like, right. yeah. I I was never in a position. Uh, like that. I, I'm not sure the firm has clients that I really find that all that morally objectionable. I'm sure if I dug through the records, I could find a few, but uh, not front and center in a way that was front of mind for me. Um, I personally, I don't think I ever had to do any work on a client where I, I really felt like any sort of moral crisis like that. Um, and had I, 
I'm not did quite you want, sure. Did how you want? It, did you want? I, I think I'm more interested to know, like, on a personal level, sort of on your like maybe your core identity level. Um, if you sort of, you know, had, we're doing this work, you know, more grassroots work yeah. and now you're sort of, now you're a suit. Like, did yep. you ever, did you ever struggle with that? I don't think and so. And it's not you necessarily know, particular no. to being a corporate lawyer. I think people who are, you know, go into finance or go into yep. advertising, all, you no, know, I got feel, you. It's funny. I feel like you got some of you think about this. I, I feel like people kind of fall into two broad camps when, when they have certain types of political ideological leanings. Like you can either be the kind of person who's like, you take kind of a, Deontological is not the right word, but you take the kind of approach. It's like I feel this way. I'm not going to work with the other side. Like you see it in, politi- in the political context, you compromise and work with the other side. You know, right? Some people think you play within the rules. You you get involved. You do the best you can to express your values within a structure, and you make the structure better by being a part of it and working within it. And some people think you throw cherry bombs or fire bombs or mm-hmm. Molotov cocktails at the outside, and you say, "Hell no, I'm not going to work with you." Um, I think there is a time and a place for the latter. I tend to find in most contexts that I am very comfortable in the former, not just because I, I'm putting my values in the back, back seat, but because I really do think it's important for you, know, you to stand up, be who you are, and, and, and do good work and express the right values. But you can do that um, without opting out of the system. Uh, and in addition to that, I was desperately curious to understand the system. So like, for example, I, I, you know, I, may, I may be, you know, have some you know, socially liberal leanings when it comes to politics, but I'm, you know, I'm a, I am a, like I said earlier, a dyed in the wool capitalist, and I want to understand the system. I know exactly how it works. You know, when I'm reading articles in Wall Street Journal, I want to know what's going on and how and how it happens and how it works. And that's not to say there isn't, you know, corporate corruption, there's public corruption, there isn't, you know, there isn't bad stuff happening. Um, but I am not one of these people who is foaming at the mouth and rallies down with the capitalist system. It's not, you know, that's not me at all. I'm, I'm, I'm very much a believer in capitalism. Good answer. Now that you've disappointed Cooper, let's move on to the no, next I, question. Not disappoint, no, I, I think that's a perfectly fair answer. I, I, I personally, like I, I had, I struggled, I think sometimes more than anything, just like I was, I always felt like I was really proud when, when like someone would ask me in this sort of cheesy way, like when I was in the Peace Corps and I'd meet someone and they were like, what do you do? I could be like a Peace Corps volunteer. I never felt that same, like, like I was never really that proud when I said I was a corporate lawyer. Whereas now, like now that I have my own practice, I definitely feel that I, I like when people are like, what do you do? I like sort of saying what I do now. Yeah. No, I, I totally get that. That makes a lot of sense. And it's funny. I do think there's a lot of people out there, people who haven't had the experience you had of being able to have that thing and feel proud about it. But even the people who have, who get in that world and slowly slide into a different place where they don't have that. And that's something you have to actively guard against. I, there are some interesting identity stuff that happens in that world. Like I'll never forget. I always felt like a bit of an outsider, and this goes to your point a little bit. I always felt like a bit of an outsider walking around Midtown in suits in these firms. But right towards the end, I'm not sure I felt that way. And when I quit working and started doing the startup stuff, I, you know, I, still dressed, I was still the overdressed guy at the meetups for a while. But then, particularly once I started – you know, you guys are in very nice business casual clothes. I'm wearing, you know, tennis shoes and, and, and jean-like pants. Um, I can distinctly remember the first time I ever put a suit back on and was walking around midtown during the day, during business hours. And it was like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of back here. I fit, I fit right back in. And you look around and you have this funny moment where you see the, you see the kids running around. You know who the junior associates and the analysts are who are just faking it and they have no idea what the hell's sure. going on. And you're like, no, I know. Yeah, I'm, yeah this is – I've done this. I'm, I'm part of this ecosystem for real. Like I know this, you know, and that didn't, that took a while to come and it kind of came in the back. You didn't see it happening, but it just kind of, you became steeped 
in that. So I certainly think there's a risk to what you're saying. Part of me always knew I was going to move on to do something else. So maybe I wasn't having any sort of existential crisis related to it. But it, it's, it's an interesting point, an important point. And a lot of people just slide away into yeah. moral obscurity. It's about, it's a, I think it's a, about how you define yourself. So you go to a big firm and it's easy to kind of lose what the definition of yourself is. You know, whereas for you, Cooper, you were a member of the Peace Corps and it's, it's pretty clear what that meant and the values associated with it and a teacher, what, what that means and the values associated with it. And people don't really, I don't really think people know what a corporate lawyer is. And I don't think a lot of corporate lawyers know exactly what a, a corporate lawyer is. I think that's right. And I think a lot of corporate lawyers themselves don't experience a lot of agency in their work. Right. That's another point. Uh, just because of the model, but also because they're not very good at what they do. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, you, it can be a very cool job if you engage with it in the right way, but it's certainly not for everyone. And not everyone's going to feel that way in large part because I feel like a lot of people never get to the level of practice they should be at. I know you talk about this in your blog and, and on your podcast, but what are a couple of tips for first years at big firms to engage with the position the right way? One, if you had to pick one or two big ticket ways to approach the corporate law job. Yeah. Um, I will say, I'll give you two. One is going to sound ridiculously oversimplified, but just take it from me that, you know, having been a senior associate who has reviewed the work of a bunch of incredible junior associates who are the best and the brightest at one of the top firms, people don't do it. When you start out, you're going to know, you're not going to know your ass from your elbow and you're not going to know anything about what to do. Uh, just when, when you, when you have a task in front of you, find the things that you can do correctly and get them hundred percent right. And if that's as simple as naming the file with the right file convention, f- making sure the mar- margins are right, f- for making sure there's no spelling errors, if that's all it is, then do that. And then slowly work out taking, you know, expanding your zone of responsibility and doing it a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And that's the way you kind of work up the ladder to having real agency over things. A lot of people are so in a hurry to get themselves up to speed substantively, they forget about the little low-hanging fruit, and they have no appreciation for what happens when they hand the work off and the senior associates doing that at five in the morning, wondering why the hell you couldn't get it right. And then two, and this is a much more important point um, that you should start as early as possible and move on the way up. Uh, A lot of junior associates who can't really see the bigger picture or struggle to see the bigger picture of the deal, you, you need to try to do that. And you need to understand how what you're being asked to do fits into the bigger picture. And the best way to do that, in my experience, is have an understanding of what you're being asked to do, what, what it's going to be used for. What, somebody's asking you to research something. Why? Because there's an email going to a client. Make sure you know who the audience is, what the deliverable is supposed to be. And to the extent you can, including taking risks, you know, definitely give your assigning lawyer exactly what they asked for if they wanted highlighted cases or they wanted bullet points in an email, whatever. But actually take a crack at putting together a work product that could leave the desk of the person in, on top of you. And it's going to feel super uncomfortable. It's going to feel like, oh, I'm not in a position to do this. I'm not equipped to do this. One of the reasons it's going to be super uncomfortable is you're going to have to make a bunch of choices about stuff you don't know. And you're going to think a lot of those things you don't know are things you should know you just haven't learned yet. But in, in truth, a lot of those things are real judgment calls that whoever the lawyer delivering the advice is, you know, whoever the lawyer is that's delivering the advice is going to have to make. So 
take, have a crack at it. Use your best judgment. Get there. And then what happens next is when you send that work product off and you watch what happens to it when it's on your senior associate's desk and then it leaves, when you compare what your senior associate did to what you did, the amount of learning you can drive from that is incredible because not only do you get to see the changes they make, but you get to be you get to go to school um, on kind of the motivations. You get to understand, oh, here's what they're highlighting. I thought about putting that in the bullets up top, but I didn't because I didn't think it was important. But clearly, it is. In this way, you you have this really rich understanding of this of the matter in front of you, and the training you get out of that exercise every time you do it is astronomical. You do that two or three times, you're literally it's like you skip a year in the law firm. And so you really just have to roll up your sleeves, try to pretend, okay, I'm going to be the senior associate on this one, and send them a draft. They could just forward along. It sounds like every task that you encounter when you first start, you should look at it from two vantage points. Accomplish the task as best you can, but also learn each time you do something, grow a little bit with each task. I don't think younger lawyers think that way. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And um, there's some legwork you have to do to put yourself in a position to learn as much as possible. And that's the stuff that's really hard to do when you're working 90 hours a week and you're junior. But you get, you ha- it makes all the difference in the world. So tell us a little bit about, you know, you, st- you were at a firm for eight years? No, no. Um, I, so I clerked. I left as a sixth year, okay. but I clerked. So okay. I was there for five or a little, little less, I think. Okay. And did you always think, you, you said, you know, going in, you knew that you wouldn't be in big law forever. Did that change at all? Did you sort of after two, three years find yourself enjoying it? And did did any point of you think, maybe I'll give it a shot and see if I can make partner? I'm not sure I ever got to the place where I genuinely entertained the notion of staying in truth, like seriously, but I got a lot closer than I was. I spent a couple years in the firm's London office um, from the middle of my third year to the middle of my fifth year. Um, <clears throat> and while I was there... Because it's a smaller office, I had an opportunity to do to do a lot of work at a much higher level with a higher level of expectations. Worked under uh, uh, a very demanding partner mentor that I became close with, and my work just got, I think, you know, leaps and bounds better. And I started operating at a much higher level, understanding the rule at a strategic level, and being able to have more fun with it, and feel like you're doing more in, in truly running deals. And whereas. If you had asked me when I was a first or second year whether I would have a genuine shot at making a partner at a top law firm, I would have been like, probably not because I look around these rooms at these brilliant people and feel like, oh, I don't have these tools, these skill sets. I mean one of my, my absolute favorite thing about working at Davis Polk was <clears throat> I could walk into any given room and be confident. I was the dumbest person in the room. And while some people, I, some people might not like that, I love it because it's like you just you literally learn. Every time you interact with somebody, you're learning and it's incredible and it challenges you and it makes you better. Um, Towards the end, when I started to shore up some of those deficiencies or shortcomings that I had in some of the technical aspects through you know, the hard work and mentorship from some of, some of these lawyers, I also started to appreciate some of the skills that I had that some of these lawyers did not have um, that could have added value in a different way. And so I, I did entertain the notion that I, if I had wanted to become a partner at a top firm, you know, maybe I would not have had a chance at Davis Polk. Um, but another top firm it may well have been a possibility. I, I, you certainly consider it. It's hard, not you know, to look sure, at it and be sure. like, if invested this time, you know, this kind of money is involved. But um, at the end of the day, in the, you know, 
<laughs> hearkening back to my 12 year old self we were talking about earlier like you know this being the only life I get to lead I was like you know if there's things you want to do you got to do it and I want it at the end of the day law is a service industry you are somebody else's agent you are helping someone else and if it blows your hair back to be somebody else's trusted advisor it's a great profession for you it's, an, it's a wonderful one and it can be a very noble one if you do it properly um, but at the end of the day I, I want to create things I want to build things and I want to do things. I want to do my own things. And I knew that I, that itch would never get scratched as long as I was a lawyer because at the end of the day, you're doing somebody else's work. When you told people that you were leaving to sort of go off on your own and start your own ventures, what was the reaction um, in the firm? So uh, it was mixed. So um, there were some people who kind of knew it might be coming. Like I, I had had conversations and I encourage anyone who's thinking about leaving a firm, if they're if they're relatively well regarded within a firm, absolutely have conversations with the people in the firms. Good advice. So you don't, you know, take a job that's beneath where you should be. Like I've had friends leave for lateral moves, and I'm just like, you could have gotten set up so much better by right. the partnership here. Um. So I, I had conversations with some of my closer mentors early on, uh, and and they were very supportive. Uh, so I never really got the full effect of the I'm just telling you I'm leaving. Right. Um. When I did have that I'm leaving conversation. I had come back from London about six months before I left. So I had the opportunity to do you know, a handful of deals by the time I got back and left. And the people I was working with in New York were people I really hadn't worked with closely in a few years. So uh, the ones I hadn't worked with again probably thought of me as that second, third year that left and was pr- probably competent but not great. Um, and they were like, oh, you know. But, but there, there were a few of the lawyers who I would worked with in the, on those last few transactions who uh, – there were, there were a few – exclamations of shock and dismay when that happened um, from a couple of the partners, um, which was really nice and flattering and made me feel good. Um, um, and I was also the last man standing in my class in m at Davis Polk. So, you know, the, the 2010 grads are in the old set over there unless they've hired laterals. <laughs> um, uh, and so I think some people at the associate level were shocked that I was leaving. I'd stayed long enough to be the last person in the class right. and then left. Most people assume you're going to make a run at partner there. Um, were, were people surprised though um, with what you were doing? I just feel like, especially in that world, it's a very conservative world. Most people leave to go to the justice department or leave to go to a similar size firm. When you told people what you were leaving to do, was what was that? I'm curious about that reaction. Yeah, it was it was mixed. Some uh, some people just just didn't get it. Yeah, I and mean, I still get that a lot. I had a call right. today, and somebody was like, "But, but what's your? How do you make money? Like, what's your job?" Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like, no, oh, I'm trying to do this stuff. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So some people are kind of incredulous, particularly the more conservatively minded ones. Some people are like, "I wish I had the balls to do that. Like, yeah. I, I wish I would have done that." Um, and you know, I, I'm very lucky in that I, I don't have any dependents, you know, I, I only have myself to worry about, you know, I saved aggressively and put myself in a position to do it and I'm going to take the risk and do it. Um, some people can't, but it, it was, it was kind of a funny and mixed set of reactions. I think there's a, there's probably a mix at every job. Um, and you have like a, a smattering of really entrepreneurial souls who will never be satisfied, even if you made partner it's unlikely that you would have that itch would have gone away to go out and build something on your own. Yeah, I think that's right. And there are some in this climate, you know. So Lee, you know, you know how interested I am in legal tech and innovation. There are incredible opportunities to innovate within law firms today. It's long overdue, 
and the innovation is very unlikely to come from the senior, senior, senior levels for lots of reasons. So there are people doing some incredible and innovative things internally. And you even see firms setting up kind of internal innovation departments where they're looking at mixing up the business model or, or providing client service in a slightly different way or, or investing in startup companies or developing proprietary tech internally. I mean, there's people doing all kinds of cool stuff internally. Uh, and if you're into that, you know, absolutely. Um, I, I tend to think or at least kind of know about myself I needed to, you know, kind of jump off the cliff in order to make a real go of it. Um, I, my partner on Martin Tour in London used to say, you got to burn the boat. You know, you got to <laughs> sail over and then burn the boat. <laughs> um, and I, it, to me, I know how I work, and I, so I think, that's, I think that's true of me. So I, I decided I needed to leave. I, I wouldn't, couldn't do it. Anymore. Do you think your current ventures would be as successful had you not spent six years as a as an associate at a big firm, do you think you could have done these things, or do you think a lot of the skills that you learned as a as a big law attorney have transferred and served you well, sort of in the startup space? Um, yeah, no, it's been very helpful in a couple of respects. So, to the point you were kind of making, I, I, there is there is a change that occurs over time as the associate ranks. In my experience, you start off have no idea what you're doing. You get to a point where you start to have some idea what you're doing. And you can get right answers and you can deliver good advice, but in the back of your mind, you're still like, oh, sh- oh shit, I hope somebody checks this. I'm not quite sure. But you, you really do reach a place with enough hard work over time where you start to feel like you have an independent judgment facility that you can trust. Like you start to learn to trust yourself. When you're, you know, it, there's no right or wrong answer, there's a better answer. And you have to, a view has to be taken about something. And you start to get very confident that I'm, I am somebody who is capable of taking a view. And I can trust that view. And so when you get to that place, I think that's very helpful for business because, you know, as you guys know, doing, your, you know, everything from this project to your, to your firm practice, to your legal practice, you know, like you're going to have all kinds of people telling you to do things differently in different ways. You're doing it wrong. You're not you, – at the end of the day, you have to be able to trust yourself or you're going to go mad. And so I think getting to a certain level of seniority in any profession, but particularly in my profession, I can speak from personal experience, hugely beneficial. And then in addition to that, given the particular nature of my projects, like the, the, the training component, like you know, the Black Lines and Billables content that focuses on what we call associate success and development, there are people who try to give that sort of advice having practiced at a law firm for a year or two. And I'm sure, I, I'm sure some of it's valuable, and I'm sure I could have given decently valuable advice at that age. But there's, there's stuff you just can't – you don't even understand until you're on the other side of the equation as the senior associate looking back. And you, you see it through a whole different lens in a way that's just hugely valuable. Um, and not to say that you, know, you learn everything under the sun or that you know, I, I learned everything I wanted to learn. But you start to have access to enough of the high-level understanding of how deals work, of how they get put together – you know, that it really demystifies business a little bit. So I, I found that very helpful. What going to your, uh, switching over just completely terrible segue, but what are the, um, are there any particular ideas in legal tech that you're super excited about? <laughs> uh, so you, not, a, not a great segue there. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm just laughing because we were talking earlier. To, oh, so, I thought you were talking about a different segue. It's a different segue. Oh, yeah. Segue <laughs> over. Good, good, good. That's how you do this. Oh, That's yeah. how you segue. Yeah, you yeah, segue yeah. the segue. That's why they pay Lee the big bucks. Right. Yeah. Um, so we were talking earlier about the roller coaster ride that is cryptocurrency happening right at this moment. So the block, underlying blockchain technology, um, the use cases for it in legal, I think, are much narrower than people think 
they could be, but but the, the ones that there are can be quite exciting. We had an interesting event, a panel event at Hogan Levels in November through the meetup on on kind of the basics of blockchain and legal use cases. And when, and when you get people who really know what they're talking about who can talk about implementing certain types of solutions on a blockchain in connection with legal services, it, it actually can be quite exciting and valuable. And we, I guess we shouldn't go down the rabbit hole because you know, we'd be talking about it for 45 minutes. Um, but there, there is some interesting stuff there. Um, you know, there's been a lot of hype around AI for the last five or 10 years. I, I really do think we are getting to the point in much, again, in much more limited ways than people believe. <laughs> a lot of people believe. But we are getting to the point where you can really start to add material value algorithmically to some of these processes. And the things that I'm particularly excited about are the things that were the biggest pain points for me as a junior associate. Like there's some stuff, repetitive stuff you do over and over and over again that's just drives you absolutely nuts. And now you can start to rely on, you know, some some algorithmic and digital solutions to help carry some of that water. Um, one of the th- one of the cool things, uh, you know, so law firms are starting to get smarter about the need for better business intelligence like other businesses. And I think a lot of that's directly attributable to the fee pressures that have come in the wake of the financial crisis, people less willing to accommodate fat in the bills and things along those lines. But, you know, there's this massive wealth. Anytime you have an enterprise that has millions and millions and millions of documents and they have billing records, you know, down to six-minute increments of exactly how transactions have unfolded in the past and how much it how much time it took to do something. We're sitting on an absolute wealth of information and data about how this stuff works. So from a workflow perspective and also from a business intelligence perspective in terms of setting budgets and you know, pricing deals, uh, I, I think firms – there's going to be some real winners and losers depending on how, who moves first. But we're about to see some really interesting developments I think in the, the market for legal services where some of the firms are going to start to get a little bit more business savvy, a little bit leaner, a little bit you know, more nimble. And others who are just going to, you know, be kind of priced out uh, of the market. Before we let you go, Christian, uh, where can you've been talking about a bunch of stuff that you're doing? Where can anybody who's listening find you online? Um, yeah, quick last plug for you. Absolutely. Um, so the the blog project we've been talking about in the podcast is Black Lines and Billables, and, and the URL is just blacklinesandbillables.com. We're on Twitter at, at BNB Legal, and you know. Facebook, LinkedIn, just black lines and billables. Um, the NYC Legal Tech Meetup, just go to meetup.com and search for NYC Legal Tech Meetup or Google it. You'll find the page. If you're local, we'll have all kinds of interesting, cool events. The, the personal speaking brand I run is called The Firm Formula, and it's just firmformula.com. Uh, and if you're interested in learning more about talks on law, you can reach out to me directly. I'm, I'm just um, Christian at blacklinesandbillables.com, or I'm on Twitter as well as Christian L. Lang at Christian Line, Just reach out to me. be happy to talk about all these projects or anything under the sun. And the last thing that I'll say is for law students who are listening, I know a lot of your projects are kind of focused towards practicing lawyers. However, um, in terms of forward thinking and taking risks, which we've been talking about, I think it's great a great idea for law students to read some of your stuff, kind of learn what it's going to be like to be a, a corporate lawyer or a first-year associate, second-year associate, junior associate, and also start to immerse themselves in the world of legal tech and get familiar with what's out there. I think that's a great idea. And actually, th- there is a fantastic How to Succeed in Law School series yes, on the is. blog written by a, f- a good friend of mine who, who has great insight into how you're successful in law school in a way that I, I was not particularly successful. <laughs> so uh, awesome. definitely give it a read. Thanks awesome. so much. Thank you so much. Appreciate Thank you, guys. It.